If you have your Bible, uh, take it and turn to the book of uh, Philippians chapter 3, or if you have maybe an app on a smartphone, uh, we'd love for you to follow along with us there uh, in that text. We'll be looking at verses 12 uh, through 21. And if you've not been with us in our study of Philippians, I just want to give you a brief context uh, to Paul's letter uh, that we refer to as uh, Philippians in our New Testament. Paul had started uh, the church at Philippi on his uh, third, on his second missionary journey, and he had preached the gospel, and a lot of people had come to Christ, and they were primarily women, and a church was established there. Uh, Paul was accused of uh, stirring up uproar and confusion uh, in the city, and as a result of that, uh, he was uh, imprisoned. Uh, God used that imprisonment to bring more uh, people to Christ, and that church uh, grew and flourished. And it had been about uh, 11 years uh, since Paul had planted that church, and Paul hasn't uh, seen these people in Philippi for about four years. And they hear that he's been imprisoned uh, in the city of Rome, that he's under house arrest, under guard by uh, the Praetorian uh, guard, that royal guard. And they heard that he was in prison. They wondered how he was. They had heard that there was a possibility that he even may be dead. And so they send a gentleman from their fellowship, a man, man by the name of Epaphroditus, and he uh, goes on his way to Rome while he's on that trip. He gets sick even to the point that he's near death himself. But finally he finds Paul and he brings uh, their greetings uh, uh, to him and probably brings care packages, right? Paul's favorite cookies and cakes that the women there in the church at Philippi had made. He brings those things to him. And Paul then pens a letter back to the church at Philippi, thanking them and reminding them about how he feels about them. He has a very deep, loving relationship with them. And we've been focusing throughout our study in Philippians on this theme and this basic idea of what real joy is what it means to truly be happy. What does it look like for us to experience lasting joy, not just temporary joy? And we've used this definition of joy several times in our study, and I want to give it to you again this morning. Joy is the supernatural. You see, it's supernatural, right? Now, you can choose joy to some extent, but joy is at the end for the follower of Jesus, it is supernatural, and it's a supernatural satisfaction that's found in the person of Christ, the purposes of Christ, and in the people of Christ. And just before Easter, Jerry walked us through that first uh, section there in chapter 3, and we saw that real joy uh, truly is not based on the circumstances of life, whether those are good or bad, not based on what we have or what we don't have. In fact, Paul says that he'd gotten to the point in his life that he considered everything that was part of his life that he had once considered valuable. The text says that he considered them to be trash or rubbish. One, one translation says uh, literally dog dung. It doesn't get much worse than that. Just ask the people on the bulletin boards in the neighborhoods around here when you let your dog get onto their nice green grass. Paul said, I consider everything that was good around me, everything that I thought was valuable, it's like dog excrement laying in the green grass. It means nothing to me because at the end of the day, what I really care about is that I want to know Christ. Paul had gotten to that point in his life, and 
Several weeks ago, I heard a story about a man who was in the last days of his life, and he had spent his entire life on the pursuit and the accumulation of money. He earned the money, he counted it, he saved it, he invested it. And on his deathbed, he told his wife, he said, I've decided I'm going to take it with me. And uh, she said, well, you know what they say, honey, you can't, you can't take it with you. You got to leave it behind. And he said, no, I, I've thought about that. I've heard that. But I've decided that I'm going to take it with me. And what I want you to do is when I die, I want you to get all my money together in a box. I want you to put it in the box and I want you to put it in the casket right beside me. And she said, I don't think I can do that. And he said, I want you to promise me right now that when I die, you'll put it all in a box and that you'll bury it right along with me. I am going to take it with me. And so she promised him that she would do just that. And the time came for the man to die and uh, the pastor got up and did the funeral and Right at the end of the funeral, after the guest had left, the wife comes down the aisle, and just before the funeral director closes that casket for the final time, she takes out this box, and the pastor looks at her, and he says, you're not going to do it. And she said, I am. And he said, no, you're, you're, you're not going to do that. And she said, oh, but I, but I am. And she has this box, and she places it in uh, that casket, and the pastor looked at her, and he said, you didn't just do that. And she said, oh, but I did. He said, I can't believe you did that. She said, believe it. I did it. I stuck a check in that box. <laughs> and I heard that story and I thought, what a, what a silly story, but how well it really illustrates how many of us live our lives at the very end of the day. We live for here and for now. And the truth is, as we said uh, several weeks ago uh, in a sermon, that it is really life is just like a, a, a monopoly game in one sense, that at the very end of the game, it all goes back in the box. You don't keep your hotels and your houses and your money and all those other things you've accumulated. It all goes back in the box. Can I ask you this morning, what are you living for? That ultimately, at the end of the day, is going back in the box because you can't take it with you. What is your passion? What is the reason why you get up each day? It's amazing to me the passions that people have. Got any stamp collectors here? All right, good, we have none. Because I don't understand stamp collecting, right? I don't really get that. I don't really understand at the end of the day. I know we have some very passionate runners. Any passionate runners in here? I used to be, well, you know, long, long time ago, right? Um, I don't understand that, right? I mean, I run as a punishment. I don't run as something that I get up every morning, have a passion to do that. But what is your passion? What is it when you come to the end of your life, when your time here on earth is finished, what's the one thing that you want to be able to say you pursued with passion? I would say to you this morning that what you passionately pursue are those things which are worthy of your time, your money, your energy, and your emotion. And we all have those things that we're passionate about. Paul had one passion. And many of you have heard this text uh, taught and preached so many times. And I just want to remind you of some truths right here at the beginning of this text that Paul's main passion was to know Jesus as much as possible, this side of heaven. And many of you know, if you're students of the word, that Paul had a tendency uh, throughout the New Testament to illustrate spiritual truth uh, using uh, athletic illustrations. And here in Philippians chapter 3, he's using a runner that's competing in a race for a prize. 
running for the finish line with every bit of energy that's in his body. And this morning, I want to walk us through this text as quickly as I can in the time that we have together today. And I want to give you just four simple uh, keys to the game. If you are going to finish your race well, if you're going to accomplish God's purpose for which he's left you on this planet for, there are four keys to the game. I always like it before a big football game when the analysts come on TV and they kind of talk about both teams and then right at the end, one of the analysts will say, here's the keys to the game. If this is going to be accomplished, if this team's going to win, here's what they're going to have to do. If this team is going to win, here's what they're going to have to do. And what Paul does in this particular text is he goes and he, he gives us keys to the game for living a life with purpose. And so in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. The first key to the game is to run for the prize. You have to be in the game. You got to run for the prize. And this is quite a statement for a man to make who has known Jesus now for about 30 years by the time he writes this letter. He's preached the gospel, he's planted churches, he's trained leaders. He's incredibly well-known in the church world, and yet he still confesses that he has not arrived. One theologian said it this way, self-dissatisfaction lies at the root of our noblest achievements. Self-dissatisfaction lies at the root of our noblest achievements. In other words, if, uh, if there's not a sanctified dissatisfaction In your walk with Jesus, you will never make progress in your walk with Christ. Whatever we achieve spiritually, or for that matter, if you think about it, any other area in your life, if there is a satisfaction with where you are, then you will never achieve the next level. And that's true in our relationship with Jesus as well. If you're content, if you feel like you have reached the place where you're okay with where you are right now, can I say to you this morning that you are in an incredibly dangerous position? You say, what does that look like? It looks something like this, which many of us would find ourselves in this position this morning. If you believe that you've had enough prayer, if you believe that you've had enough church, if you believe that you've in fact heard this text this morning and you really are as qualified to stand up and and preach it, if you feel like you've had just a little bit too much Christian fellowship and you've had just a little bit too much mentoring or discipleship in your life, then you are in a very dangerous condition. Paul doesn't want to be satisfied with where he is, and neither should we. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I don't care how long you've known Jesus, you should not be satisfied with where you currently are. And Paul says, I want to keep pressing on. Literally, I want to chase it. I want to run after it. I want to pull it down. One translation says that I may apprehend him. It's the idea of a football player that's running down the field, about ready to make the tackle, and he grabs hold of the guy and he brings it to the ground. Paul says, that's what I want to do with Christ. I want to make him the very essence of my being, of who I am. I want to know him. I want to be passionate about these things. How do we do this? Verse 13 says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said in order to be able to do that, there's some things that we're going to have to forget. Now, we normally, as we have have 
heard this text, and maybe you've studied this before, you think, well, Paul has a past to forget, does he not? You remember that Paul, before he came to know who Jesus was, uh, on that road uh, to Damascus, uh, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. And so we oftentimes take this text and we assume that it means that, that what we've got to do, just like Paul, is we've got to forget all the bad stuff that happened in the past. And for many of us, we've got things that have happened in the past that don't have to define who we are right now, but they definitely explain where we are. And the devil constantly wrestles with us to remind us of those past mistakes and past failures. And we begin to assume that that's the only thing that we're supposed to do is just forget the bad stuff that's happened in the past. That's part of this text, but there is a larger context in that we are also to forget maybe all the good things that we've done in the past that we are counting on right now as justification for who we are in Christ. You found yourself that sometimes you just simply want to reminisce about things that you've done for God in the past. I have found myself oftentimes when I'm in dry and dusty times in my life going back to old stories of what God's allowed me to be part of or allowed me to see in the past. And it's as if God reminds me how I need to have current stories of what God's doing in my life and through my life in the lives of other people. Imagine if you were in a race and you got ready to run the race and the guys uh, standing on either side of you were talking about, do, do you know what I've done? Do you know the races that I've run? Do you know how I've finished in these races? Do you know who I am? You might look at the person and say, shut up, run this race that we're in right now. I don't want to hear what you've done in the past. What you've done in the past really doesn't matter. It's what you're doing today for the cause of Jesus Christ. Kind of reminds me of a football championship that happened uh, a little earlier this year in January. There was a team that strutted into that national championship game with all the interviews, all the hype about the storiedness of the program and all the things that we've done in the past, and I couldn't wait for them to get beat, even if it was by Clemson. But when you come in and you rest on the accomplishments of the past, you're in a dangerous, dangerous position. And Paul said earlier in chapter 3, all of his religious achievements, the, the things that, that he had done, the great successes, his pedigree is who he was, the family he grew up in, and how they had followed the Jewish law. None of those things mattered. The Apostle Paul, even writing at this particular time, he's known Jesus for 30 years, he's planted churches all over the place, and he says this one thing, one thing that I do, I'm going to focus on this, I'm going to forget the bad stuff from back there, and all the good stuff that God's done so far, I'm not going to focus on that, I'm going to focus on the here and on the now. And Paul knew that he needed to stay in the race, not look over his shoulder at past accomplishments or failures. He wanted to run patiently and passionately to the finish line. And more of us need to have that passion to, to finish well and not look over our shoulders, but be pressing on so that we finish the race and we finish it well. And Paul says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature, maybe your translation said, let those of us who are perfect think this way. What way should we think? We should Think passionately pursuing the prize of God and his call upon your life now and eternally. 
He's saying, let those of us who have known the Lord for a, for a long time to continue to think about all the things that we have yet to learn about who Christ is and what he wants to do in and through our lives. He still wants to use us. He still wants to, uh, to do things in and through us to impact and influence people with the gospel. And then he says, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. There's a little bit of sarcasm there. It's as if Paul is kind of writing and he goes, I know there are some of you that even as I write this letter and you're sitting in that church at Philippi, you're thinking, I think a little bit differently about that, Paul. I have a different perspective. And I love that the Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm really not going to preach any further about it. I'm not even going to write any further about it. I'm just going to tell you, if you think differently, you're wrong and God's going to show you that. I love uh, that tactic, and I'm, I'm going to take just a little bit of, ta- of a different tactic here for just a moment, and, and I'm not just going to let God reveal that to you also. I'm going to reveal just a little bit to you, okay? I suspect that there are some of us that are here at Northwest Community Church living in the year 2017, and we, if we were honest, we would have to admit that we think otherwise than what Paul just said as well. That we, 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 we see our relationship with Jesus and the Christian life more as a destination. It's just a goal, something to be achieved. It's kind of like, you know, getting to a certain age where you go, I got to buy life insurance, right? You remember what that was like? You know, you don't really think you're going to die for a very, very long time and you got to make this payment. I had this conversation with my 24-year-old son about a year ago. And was explaining to him that now that you're married, you have responsibility. And if, and if something happens to you, she wants to be rich. So you need, you know, she wants to be beautiful and rich. And you're gone. And that'll help kind of salve some of that that you're gone. So you need to get some life insurance. And he went through the process and checked the box. It kind of reminds me of what marriage is like for many of us, right? You know, back in the day, in fact, I've, I've heard my friend and colleague Matt Rice talk about um, what he was like kind of as a, a little bit of a grade school, middle school, high school, kind of a player, you know, on the, he, he knew how to woo the girls. We've all heard the stories, right? He shared them. Uh, he's been public about this, so I don't feel like I'm breaking any confidences. He, he was that kind of a person, and I think there were a lot of us that were like that when we were kind of in that dating game, and then, especially for those of us as guys, we got to the point where we put the ring on the finger, and after we got the ring on the finger, we went, done, check the box, won the girl, Right? Women, any wives here today that would say, uh, yeah, I'm kind of living that just a little bit? Anybody? We had an elder's wife in the first service. She uh, boldly stood up and, no, she didn't stand up and proclaim that, but that's kind of the way marriage is. And some of us look at our Christian lives the same way, don't we? It's kind of like I got the insurance, I got the ticket, I'm all set. When I die, when the trumpet blows and Jesus comes back, I'm going there. I got the things done. I checked the box. That's all set. What's, all, what's the next thing? And we look at it as if it's a destination. And all we need to do is just a little bit of a tune-up along the way. But for the most part, we got this thing down. We're just going to kind of tweak it here and there just a little bit. But for the most part, we're good. If that's our attitude, then we prove that we have yet to fully understand what it really means to have a passionate relationship with Jesus. We're never finished 
in our relationship with Jesus. It is an eternal relationship, and we never get to where we need to be or where we want to be as we passionately run that race. And we finish the race when we cross over into our citizenship, which we'll see here in just a few moments, which is in heaven. But that relationship is eternal. And if you've gotten to the point where you think you've arrived and your destination is there, I would echo what Paul said. Let those of us that think that you're there Think a different way. And if you think the other way, other than what I just said based upon what Paul said, then you're wrong, and I pray that God will show that to you and that you will not be content with your spiritual complacency. Verse 16 says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, to continue to live by the standard that we know is right and is pleasing to God. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul will say it in a different way. He'll encourage us, we'll look at that text next week, to stand firm. Don't let anything move you just to stand firm. And oh, we would do well to have some of those men and women and middle school and high school students that are part of Christianity today, those that would stand firm and not let anything move them. So the first key to the game is to run for the prize. Secondly, we have to recognize and cherish godly examples. Verse 17 says, Brothers, join, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, scholars often wrestle with this particular section and how it connects to what Paul just said. But I think it's actually pretty clear that one strategic way in which we continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus, we continue to be um, passionate followers of Jesus, is through the influence of other believers. Those people that uh, are just a little bit ahead of us, just a little further ahead of us in their knowledge, their understanding, where they are in their walk with God, We say this often at Northwest, and I want to take this opportunity in the context of our exposition of Philippians to say it again. We desperately need each other. And so this theme is common in Paul's writing in the New Testament. No fewer than eight times does he challenge people in the New Testament to be imitators, to be followers. And it might sound a little bit arrogant or or egotistical of him to ask people to imitate him. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he makes it clear that we are to imitate him as he does what? As he imitates uh, Jesus. And this is an incredible responsibility that we have. In fact, even for the Apostle Paul, if you were to flip over to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, you'll read, maybe some of you have studied this before, you'll read about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, God had given him this, this This thorn is what he calls it, and we're not sure what it is. Some people uh, believe that it uh, could have been his eyesight, it could have been a a speech impediment, some other physical uh, anguish uh, that he had. And Paul prayed that God would take that away from him, and the end result was that God said, no, I want you to realize who the power is, where the power comes uh, in your life, and I'm going to leave it there. And most of us come to the conclusion, based on 2 Corinthians 12, that it was probably as a result of the Apostle Paul and his pride that he had in his own life. He was very much aware of his own struggles, of his own shortcomings. And so when he says, imitate me, he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And not only does he tell them to imitate him, but also to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. In other words, we need other people in our lives to show us how to live, how to passionately pursue 
the prize that is ours in Jesus. And so I have two questions for you this morning. Number one is, who are you following? Who are you following? Who is the person in your life that is serving to you as an example of what it looks like to pursue Jesus? If you have nobody in your life like that, then I would only come to the conclusion that you're probably not growing as you could or as you should, and you need to find someone to follow. We need people ahead of us, don't we, that are showing us the way. I've shared with a couple of men just this week and one right after the service that I long for in my life those people that are ahead of me, that I can follow, that I can run hard behind because they're running the race well. And they point out to me places on the road where there are ruts and they point out to me the consequences of making decisions that could have devastating effects not only on my life but other people. They're the people that are ahead of me that have done well in their marriages, the people that are ahead of me that have done well with their kids that are older and yet still have a passion for the things of God. I want those people in my life. And even this week, God has demonstrated to me again that there are men in my life that are right here ahead of me and right alongside of me that I'm running the race with. And I know you say, well, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you be way up there? And you kind of should be setting the pace. Well, let me just uh, uh, take care of any uh, false expectations uh, that you have. I, Jerry, Matt, we are in the race right there with you. And not only do you need people who you can follow, we need those people as well. People that love us enough to speak truth into our lives, to show us how to live the life, how to passionately pursue the prize. Who are you following? And then secondly, who's following you? One of the problems uh, in our churches today is that um, there are too few of us that want to take on the responsibility of being leaders, right? In fact, James says that not many of us should want to be teachers because if you're a teacher, you have a greater responsibility. And so I get that and I understand that, but can I tell you this morning that none of us can opt out of being an example? You are an example, good or bad, but you are one today. So as you and I follow someone, there are others who are behind us and they're following our lead. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, I'm old enough that I'm slow enough that nobody's following me, right? I'm so thankful for uh, the men and women that are part of Northwest that have known Jesus for a long, long time. And I'm thankful that there's at least a contingency of them that haven't bought into the idea that now they're just kind of coasting along and everybody's kind of passing them up and they're going, hey, been there, done that. They forgot. There's a group of people here at Northwest and they bought into this idea that we need you to continue to run the race and we need you to run it well. There's nothing that warms my heart more. You want to learn how to pray? You come the first Monday night of every month over to our church office. And don't pray with our elders. You pray with some of these women who come and pray. Let me just tell you that. Right? You listen to my mother-in-law lift up the name of Jesus and bring people's needs and requests before the throne of God. You listen to Sandy Russell pray. You want to learn how to pray? You follow somebody else. Because there are people that are following you. And I'm so thankful that there are a group of people that realize that we need you to continue to run the race. And we need you to run it well. Men, do you realize that right now someone is watching you? 
And I know some of you can look around the auditorium and you say, well, certainly somebody's watching that guy right there. I know his position. He's an elder or, or he's a teacher or, you know, he's got certain status at the church. You know, I want to say every single man here today, I don't care where you find yourself this morning in your relationship with Jesus, even if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you've not stepped over that line of faith. Somebody's watching you. They're watching to see if you'll love your wife as Jesus loves you. They're watching to see if you'll be faithful to her, to see if you'll remain attracted only to her for a lifetime. They're watching to see if you're a man of integrity at your job. They're watching to see if you'll be a spiritual leader in your home and point your children to Jesus. Someone is watching you as well. And this week, they'll watch you make a mistake. And they're going to watch and they're going to see the way that you handle sin in your life. You see, they're not, they're not, they're not going to find perfection as they're watching you. But as you mess up, as you go against clear biblical principle in your life, somebody's watching you and they'll, say, and they'll see, how does he handle it? Does he confess it or does he just fall off a cliff? Someone is watching you as you're in your personal struggle right now. And what you do and how you live your life will influence them for good or for bad. Men, I hope you understand that. Ladies, right now somebody's watching you. Will you be a woman who finds your satisfaction totally in the person of Jesus and your identity totally in him? Will you love your husband and him only? Will, will you love your kids and give them more of Jesus than you give them more stuff? Somebody's watching you. Somebody's watching you this morning, ladies, and you don't even know it, but they're looking at you, and they're thanking God for the friendship that they have with you. And you don't believe anybody knows you. You don't believe anybody cares about you. You don't believe anybody watches you, but somebody is watching. Somebody is looking to you to show them the way. Middle school, high school students, somebody's watching you. Somebody's watching, and they want to be just like you. Middle school guys, you can look and say, well, I'm just middle school. I'm sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Nobody's watching me. Somebody's watching you just a little bit younger. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood, but somebody's watching. High school students, somebody's watching. There's somebody that's just a little younger than you that is watching, and they really want to see, is it possible to live for Jesus in middle school and high school? They're watching your friendships, your relationships with the opposite sex to see how you talk to them and how you treat them. They're watching to see in you, is it possible to save yourself for marriage, to avoid making the choices which will have long-lasting consequences in life. They're watching to see if everybody at the end of the day just does it or there are some that don't. They're watching you. Do you get the point? Who are you following and who's following you? Someone is watching you, so you follow Jesus as they follow you. And now here's the warning. We can follow the wrong people. I don't know why, but there's this little interlude in verse 18. Well, I know why. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We're not sure of the identity of these people that Paul's talking about here in verses 18 and 19. But it would appear that he's referring to people who are in the process or who are at one point professed being believers, but they have walked away from their faith either literally or most assuredly by the way that they are living their lives. 
And Paul's concerned about the influence of these people on the people there at the church of Philippi that he loves, that he cares about, that he wants to passionately pursue this relationship with Jesus, that he wants to run this race so that they might win the prize. And the text says, Paul says, I'm so concerned for you that I cry over this. And it's unfortunate that I think that the same concern is warranted in churches like ours today as well. Just like there are those who we should follow, there's are, there are those that we shouldn't follow and whose influence we should avoid. We don't want to get trapped in the same destructive condition that they found themselves in. Paul literally says five things. They identify themselves as Christ followers, but they distort the reality of, of, of what the cross represents. They have a form of godliness, but it's not real. And in the end, their end is destruction. They live for themselves. Their God is their belly. I'm really uncomfortable with that whole terminology there, right? Maybe you are too. The idea is that their God is self-satisfaction. Their desire is not to please Jesus, that I might run passionately after him. Their desire is their own pleasures. Their God is their belly. It's their passion to be content themselves. They glory in their shame. Not only do they pursue their own pleasures, but they actually justify the sin that they're in as if that's appropriate, as if everybody does it. It's just kind of part of the game. You know, we live in a fallen world. I'm broken, you know. And then lastly, he says, these are people who are characterized by their minds being set on earthly things. Can I challenge you this morning to be careful who you associate with? I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I preached this message. Boy, I got good at this message. Why? Because it's such a huge thing, right? We used to say this over and over and over and over and over again to our middle school and high school students. You are like your friends are, or you soon will be. And by the way, it's not just a message that we preach to middle school and high school students. It's definitely true for them, but it's true for you today. If you're five years old or if you're 85 years old, you be careful about the people that you do life with because they are influencing you for good or for bad. Paul would write later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that bad company corrupts good morals. You thought that was a saying of Ben Franklin or something of the such, but Paul said that. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13, 20 said, whoever walks with the wise, what happens to them? They become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In other words, you are like your friends are, you soon will be. Take a look at your friends. You're either already like them, that's why they're your friends, or take a good look at them and I hope you like them because that's who you're becoming. Make sure that you have and live life with people that encourage you to passionately pursue the things of God and what he has for your life. I can't tell you how passionately, passionately uh, I preach that particular subject matter because it's every single week that we hear of stories of even grown men, grown women, couples who have been influenced and impacted because they chose the wrong people to do life with. And Paul says, please don't do that. I implore you even to the point of tears not to do that. Well, it might seem like uh, that's a dark detour. And then we come to the first word in verse 20, and as it's so often used in the New Testament, 
that word that's translated in our English translations, but. Right? It's really, really bad, and this is really bad stuff, and he's told us all this good stuff. And then he says, but, lastly, the last part of the game plan is to remember where home is. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know, it's not, it's not so easy uh, to live life here in America and be discontent. In fact, it's pretty easy to live life in America and just be content with being a citizen of America. Even the worst days, the worst circumstances that we deal with in this country are so much better than most of the world tolerates all of their lives. But the truth is that even though things appear to be good, things are broken. And as followers of Jesus, we are made for so much more than the here and the now. And this present life can never offer what God intends for us to have. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously wrote these words, If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This fallen world is fundamentally dissatisfying. And he goes on to say, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it to suggest what the real thing is that should satisfy. And this is where we often go wrong, because where earthly pleasures don't satisfy, we dwell there rather than hope for something better. Our dissatisfaction then has a purpose, he goes on to say. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. And that's why our text says that our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we live here. We have a responsibility, Jesus said in the Gospels, that we are to be light and we are to be salt, that preserving effect that human beings might understand their sole purpose, which is to bring glory to God. Yes, we should be that example on this planet, but let me remind, remind you that we are visitors here on planet Earth. We're just visitors. It's like we have a temporary visa. We're only here for a short time. You may have been granted a 90-year visa or a 95-year visa, but it runs out. We, our, our passport was never meant to be stamped with United States of America. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is how we keep our minds, our goals, our life focused on passionately pursuing the things of God when we remember where home really is. And this is an incredible thought. Because I love the government in heaven. Don't you? I mean, I thought about it this week. They always make the right decisions in the government in heaven, right? I mean, they always make the right decisions. They always just do it right. And there's no corruption in the government in heaven. There's no lying. There's no false motives. They have total control of the budget in heaven. There are no taxes. And the streets aren't just paved and the potholes filled. They're paved and filled with gold. And that's the place that I want to call home. And when you remember that you're not a citizen of this planet Earth, but there's something that awaits you eternally 
that is so much greater, so much more awesome. It causes you to woo you're running down that track, and you're not looking over your shoulder at, at the past. You are just running for that tape with everything that you have in you. And so as we land the plane this morning, I want to ask you, what's one part of that game plan that you can focus on this week? Just one part. Maybe you don't even need all four parts. Maybe that's not where you are, but maybe you need to get back in the race and run with passion. Maybe you bought into the idea that your relationship with Jesus was just a destination. You got the ticket stamped, you checked the box, and I'm good eternally now. Maybe you need to get into the game again and realize that you were saved for so much more than that. And if you think differently than that, I'm going to pray that God will reveal that to you. Get back in the race and run with passion. Do you need to find an example to follow? I want to challenge you to find one. You need to recognize the priority and the importance of it, of you being an example. Maybe you need to step away from some foolish friendships that are influencing you in the wrong direction. When I say that, I'm talking about grown men, grown women, as much as middle school, high school, grade school kids. Or do you just simply need to be reminded this morning, if you're doing well in those other areas, you just need to be reminded that that's home. This isn't it. At the end of the day, it all goes back in the box. And I want to be one that's patiently, passionately, fervently running for the tape. Paul says, that's what I do. I press on for the prize.